We're continuing our series to 1 Corinthians with this theme, Everyday Discipleship. And we've been saying just kind of about the church in Corinth that they were experiencing social, spiritual, sexual problems. There's all of these issues going on with them where they're segregating, separating from one another. And this really has to do with the fact that they had failed to understand the real life implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that their old way of living was so deeply rooted that they really had not experienced this full transformation of becoming Jesus followers, of really modeling their lives after Jesus. And this quote by Leslie Newbegin, if you guys have been here with us, you've heard me say this, but I think that this is so helpful because it kind of brings this question to us. He says, the choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by the culture of the day or by scripture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? And so that's really what we're here to ask. We claim to be followers of Jesus, but our individual lives, what are they shaped by? What's our North Star? What is the meaning of purpose of life? Are we clear on that? Now, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the biblical teaching on sex, sexuality, and marriage based out of 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And this morning, we come specifically to the subject of singleness. Now, before all you married people get up and walk out, this is vitally important for all of us because God has made us a family in Jesus Christ, a kingdom of priests. And it is essential that we learn how to live with one another in all the various stations of life, how to champion and appreciate and celebrate one another and the various stations and status that the Lord has assigned to us. Now, to most Western Christians, it seems self-evident that marriage is the normal state. What do I mean by that? Well, you know if you're single. You come to church, and what happens is if you are discovered to be a post-adolescent single, look out. Because many well-meaning people view it as their Christian duty to locate for you a mate. And we've been waiting for you to come so we could matchmake you with this individual. Now, usually the result of this kind of thinking is that when a person remains single into their late 20s or early 30s, either by choice or circumstance, again, Usually well-meaning people try to diagnose the problem, the problem that has trapped the single person in the unnatural or undesirable condition of being unmarried. Is it their sexual orientation? Is it their physical attractiveness? Well, if they just worked a little harder. Is it their intellectual ability? Or maybe it's their social ineptitude. Or it's just probably their high standards. The thought that singleness is actually good, blessed by God, and could be a permanent state of one's life doesn't seem to have occurred to many in the church. Now, I want to push back on this. Have we forgotten that it was through the faithfulness of a single celibate man that we have been redeemed and rescued I've said this before, but if we really believe that Jesus was and is who he said he is, then we must believe that Jesus really knew how to live. And that even as a single celibate man in his 30s, he experienced life in its fullness. That Jesus is in fact the model for all humanity of the good life. Now, some say that among Christians, the only fear greater than God sending them to foreign missions is the call to a life of celibacy. That doesn't sound like a people who have really contemplated the life of Jesus, as I just described it, 
and the life of many of God's people throughout history in any deep way. What really satisfies? What is the good life? What are human beings for? And again, this is what I was saying a moment ago. I think the church in many of these side conversations, we've lost our way. We've been confused and we've followed the culture and especially Western culture in this over-romanticized view of relationships. Now, although most will eventually marry, statistics show that a growing number will never do so. And that many who do marry will find themselves single again, either by divorce or by the death of a spouse. So I think the good question for us is, are we preparing and helping one another be ready for these seasons of life? Now, for these reasons and the fact that Paul teaches that singleness is a gracious gift of God. The term Paul uses here, gift, each one has their gift from God in verse seven of chapter seven. This term is the word charisma. It's a grace gift given by God as a stewardship for kingdom advancement and kingdom purposes. That's how Paul defines the gift of marriage. That's how Paul defines the gift of singleness. It is a grace gift given to an individual by God to do kingdom work. So the fact that Paul teaches this high view of both singleness and marriage I think the contemporary church is in real need of reassessing its stance on the issue of singleness. So let's talk about the goodness of singleness as Paul teaches it here. Now, traditional societies tend to make an idol out of marriage because traditional societies make an idol out of family or the tribe. And so because of this, singles are often treated as less than those who are married and have children in these traditional cultures. Now, the traditional motive for marriage was and is social duty, stability, status, the carrying on of legacy. Now, in contrast, contemporary societies tend to make an idol out of independence because We make an idol out of individuals, individual choice, individual happiness, individual freedom. And now as we have built upon this contemporary idea of the individual, now all of a sudden the contemporary motive for marriage is personal fulfillment. It's about the individual. Now both of these are partly right, but both tend to become ultimates and ends in themselves. They become self-focused, self-preserving if the gospel has not changed our hearts and minds. Now, contrary to what is often taught, what we might think, and even what the church practices, Christianity upholds single adulthood as a viable and even good way to live. Prior to Christianity and its influence, Nearly every religion and culture made family and childbearing a foundational cultural value. You can actually read this in many of the biblical stories. You think about Sarah, there's the shame that she has because she's an older woman and she's never been able to bear children. The same is true for Samson's mother and even for um, Samuel's mother. There's the shame that they bear in that society because they have not been able to carry on the family name, add to the people of God. In this culture, there was no honor without family honor, and there was no lasting significance or legacy without heirs. Now, in contrast to all this, the early church did not pressure people to marry. As we see in Paul's letter, Paul is telling people to not get married. He's discouraging people from pressuring others into marriage. The early church even went so far as to support widows so that they didn't have to remarry. 
where in contrast, pagan widows faced great social pressure to remarry. It's recorded that Caesar Augustus had widows fined if they failed to remarry within two years. It was all about, right, the Roman legacy, the nation, the carrying on of this torch. Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, says, in contrast, among Christians, widowhood was highly respected. Wow. And remarriage was, if anything, mildly discouraged. The church stood ready to sustain poor widows, allowing them a choice whether or not to remarry. Fascinating, isn't it? Can I just recommend, one of the best things we can do as the people of God is read Christian history. To know where we've come. To know what God has done in the past. To know how the early church lived. To know how the church fathers lived. To know what the second and third and fourth century of the church was like and so forth and so on. It's good for us to hear these things and be reminded of where we've come from. Now, why did the church believe and practice this countercultural way of life? Was it just to be different? Was it to be woke? <laughs> Actually, this striking countercultural view of singleness was a logical working out of the life of Jesus himself. I said this in the intro, but just think about this, church. The most whole and beautiful human being that ever lived was a single celibate man. The most whole and beautiful human being who ever lived. That tells us right away that who we marry, marriage does not make us more fit to be used by God. It doesn't make us more whole. It's not a sign of God's blessing or, you know, undeserved favor on us in contrast to those who are not. Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. This is what the early church did. And as they contemplated the life of Jesus at a deep level, people thought, well, I'm going to follow Jesus. He was a single celibate man, and he was happy. He was fulfilled. He sought the kingdom of God first and foremost. Not only that, but the church practiced this countercultural way of life because it was also a logical working out of the resurrection and a sign of, the, of hope in the coming kingdom of God. We just read this, but Paul writes, are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. If you do marry, you're not sinning. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinning. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. So from now on, those who have wives should live as though they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it wasn't actually theirs to keep. And those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. What the heck is Paul talking about? Well, Paul, like Jesus, taught the overlap of the ages. What that means is that the kingdom of God, God's power and presence at work to renew all things, had broken into the old world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Through his presence, through his life, his death, his resurrection, yes, the kingdom of God is here. It's present. It is advancing. It's here in a real and substantial way. God's power and presence to save, to heal, to renew. But it is only partial. 
Christ is not physically ruling and reigning on earth. We are not yet kings and queens reigning with him. And so at the same time, it means that the social and material concerns of this world still exist. There are still status and social order and stations to this physical world. Not only that, but there are hardships, there are setbacks, there are anxieties, there's troubles, there's the presence of sin and its power. All of these are present and at work in the world. Paul speaks to this conviction in many, if not every single one of his letters. And this is what he wants us to do. He says, though we live in the overlap of the ages, the already not yet, Paul wants the church to live in light of and the reality of the coming kingdom of God in such a way that it transforms all our earthly relationships, stations, and status. So though we're living the already not yet, Paul wants us to identify our lives and live out our lives in the already. That's how he wants us to live. This deep, you know, what's called eschatological conviction, the end of all things, the new creation, this conviction informs Paul's apparent apathy when it comes to any station of life. Paul sees all of these things, whether married, single, young, old, slave, free, Jew or Gentile, whatever other category we create as irrelevant in light of the coming and already present kingdom of God. What matters to Paul is obedience to God's kingdom way, not status or station. Or as I love the way he puts it in Galatians. There, of course, he's dealing with a different subject, but he says this, what matters is the new creation. Oh, I'm married, single, and this matters to God. I'm Jew, I'm Gentile, I'm slave, I'm free. Paul says, none of that matters. What matters is the new creation that we're living in and out of the already. This identity in Christ, this resurrection life, that's what matters most to Paul for the church. Well, then what does that look like practically to live in the already? Well, Paul just described it for us, even though it's a bit confusing. What Paul is saying is it means that everything we have in this life is a gift to steward over, preparing us for the kingdom of God. As I said, it's a grace gift. It's a stewardship given to you by God for the eschaton, for ruling and reigning with Christ. And so this means as Christians, we must not see anything in our lives outside of this understanding of kingdom stewardship. Wherever you're at in your life, whatever you have been given, this is ordained by God that you would use it for his kingdom and his glory. <clears throat> so if we have possessions, like Paul says, we should live as if they weren't really ours. We have wealth in God through our salvation, and these are simply opportunities for us to learn to rule Opportunities for us to learn to steward in the way God does. How does God do it? He does it for the benefit and blessing of others. So that means if you've been given a marriage, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but if you've been given a marriage, it's not for you. It's for the benefit and blessing of others. It's for the glory of God. If you've been gifted with singleness, it's not for you. It's not so you can be free to do what you want. It's for the benefit and blessing of others. It's for the glory of God. It's for kingdom advancement. Now, Paul applies this principle to marriage and singleness. We are neither to be overly consumed about getting or being married, nor overly disappointed about being single and celibate. And we talked about this a few weeks ago because why? Well, because God has not withheld from us the greatest gift that humans can ever possess, which is his covenant love. He offers that to every single one of us. The love that we're all longing for and looking for has been offered to us through Jesus Christ. The family that we desire, that we want to belong to, 
has been offered to us through God's forever family. It's the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us. And not only that, but according to Paul, our future and hope is not in this present world as it is, but in the world that God will remake in the future of God's kingdom. And so as we set our identity on the already, what we have in Christ, that everything has been given to us for kingdom advancement, this will dethrone this idolatry of marriage or any station or status in this life. All of a sudden, we have this incredibly equal playing field where all of us are the same. If we're part of the family of God, we've all been given gifts to bless, encourage, and serve one another, to glorify God, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're all the same when it comes to that. Now, because of that, Christians then are not to choose between marriage and singleness for the basic contemporary motive of personal fulfillment and also not for the traditional motive of propagating family legacy, but rather we are to marry or remain single on the basis of which state best makes us a sign of the kingdom. Think about that. If you're dating someone, is this relationship going to advance the kingdom of God? Is that what the two of us are about? Are we about spurring one another towards love and good deeds? Or is this relationship really about navel-gazing? Like, I'm into her, she's into me, she's into me, I'm into her. Is that what this is about? Then you should not get married. Because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about his kingdom advancement. In his book, A Community of Character, Stanley Hauerwas says that single Christian adults were a startling witness to the coming kingdom of God in the ancient world by showing that their hope and significance was not in family or heirs, but in the coming kingdom of God. He says it follows then that being married is also a way to be a sign of the kingdom because one of the main purposes of marriage is to build kingdom exhibiting community to show the world how Christ transforms everything, including marriage. One of the main ways, and perhaps the main way, that married Christians witness to Christ is to show the difference Jesus makes in a marriage. I love that. Whether you're single or you're married, the call is the same. To glorify God to put the kingdom of God on display, to use whatever status station you've been given in life for God's glory, for the benefit of others, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, I think practically, church, that means that we don't just teach this truth of 1 Corinthians 7. We've got to live it out. How do we do that? We live it out by freeing singles from the shame or pressure of being unmarried. We get rid of both the traditional and the contemporary ideas surrounding singleness and marriage. And we take up Jesus's politic around these things. Jesus's, scripture's idea about these things. It means married couples need to speak realistically and not just sentimentally about marriage. I am very thankful that I have two parents that do this. And if you've been coming here long enough, you know this. Brian and Cheryl speak very honestly about their marriage and just the arguments and just, you know, the ups and downs and all these things. We need to do this. We need to talk honestly about these things because we have, as I said two weeks ago, we have a culture that is reacting to this, you know, over-romanticized view of love. And we need to be reminded that the idea of scripture of love is covenant faithfulness, partnership, True friendship is what must undergird a real marriage, that you stick it out with one another because you're committed to the beautifying and glorifying sanctification of one another. We need marriages that speak realistically to this struggle. 
this lifelong struggle of committing to one another and to the good of one another. It means we also need to treat single members of the body of Christ as equal partners in the congregational life and leadership of the church. We need representation. So this is a call for us to live this out. Now, I want to take a moment just to continue to address the single person here that says, oh, yeah, Char, okay, great, thanks. I've been single for 30 years, and I still feel like I'm missing out. There is an article written by a woman named Paige Benton, and it's called Singled Out by God for Good. And I would just ask, if you are single, please find this article on the internet. Just Google Singled Out by God for Good. <clears throat> and please read this, but I'm gonna quote heavily from it right now. She writes this. John Calvin's secret to sanctification is the interaction of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Singles, like all other sinners, typically dismiss the first element of this formula. And therein lies the root of every identity crisis. It's not that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, but that life has no tragedy like our God ignored. Every problem is a theological problem. And the habitual discontent of us singles is no exception. If everyone around me is married, all my family, siblings, friends, church family, is God being any less good to me than he is to them? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. God can no more live in me apart from the perfect fullness of his goodness and grace than I can live in Nashville and not be white. If he fluctuated one quirk in his goodness, he would cease to be God. Warped theology is at the heart of attempts to explain singleness. She goes on to explain, listen to these, this is so good. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. You're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters with which to work. Here's another. As a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must have no part. One more. Before you can marry someone wonderful, this one's my favorite, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. I hate these cliches. They drive me mad. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. So good. She goes on. Accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculations about answers God has not given to our list of wise, but rather on celebration of the life he has given. I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. And it is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. The psalmist confirmed that I should not want, I shall not want, because no good thing will God withhold from me. Amen. We need more of that deep theology at work in the church. And in our community here, we want to practice the goodness of God. We want to practice the sovereignty of God, that God has placed us where we are because he is good, because he does good, and he promises to do us good. We need to live that out. I love how she quotes from Psalm 84. No good thing will God withhold from me. Listen to the verses surrounding that. 
A day in God's courts are better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You see, the temptation of all of us, whether married or single, is to think that God is somehow keeping us from what will really satisfy us. This is the lie from the beginning. Has God really said? God knows that if you take this, you'll be satisfied. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. This is a temptation of every one of us. But it's an absolute lie. And God has proved through the giving up of his son to death for us that he will not and does not withhold anything that is good for us. We need to speak this gospel truth over one another. Paul says this, if he did not withhold his son from us, will he not freely give us all things? We need to remember these truths, speak them over one another while remembering as well that God as our father, as our maker, is the one who decides and truly knows what is best. He knows what is good. Do we believe that? I love what Tim Keller says. He says, God's wise redemptive love in your life is perfectly compatible with terrible suffering in your life. I don't really love this, but... It's true, it's good. He says, just look at Jesus. Does God love the son? Oh, he is the beloved. That's how he's spoken of. And yet God's the father, his call on the life of his beloved son is to suffer. To suffer for our sakes that we might be redeemed. It's good. And it's hard. And these things are not incompatible with God's goodness. Do we believe that the withholding of good things from our life is actually God being good to us, even though they might be painful and lonely at times? And I think that the answer to that question will show the degree to which we have made an idol out of anything or anyone. Listen, if marriage is going to conform you more into the image of Christ, if it's going to make you more beneficial to the kingdom cause, then God will bring that into your life. If singleness is going to conform you more into the image of Christ and you know, cause you to be better used for kingdom advancement, then God will bring that into your life. Whatever causes you to lean more on the Lord for dependence, those are good things. And God promises those for his people. God has done you good, is doing you good, and will do you good. The psalmist says, how blessed, flourishing, whole, and at peace is the one who trusts this truth. Church, do we believe that? Do we believe that? That no good thing does he withhold. At peace flourishing, full are those who trust this promise. Now, lastly, I want to talk about what Paul says here. If this is true, if God has called us into this station of life, whether single or married, if this is a grace gift, then Paul's exhortation is take hold of it. Own it. Advance the kingdom of God from where you are at Presently, Listen to what he says. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Remember, the new creation, this is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. 
Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do it. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings or human ideas, is what Paul is saying. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Oh, this is so good. It's so freeing when we receive this. Look, wherever you are at in your life, this is ordained by God. This is good. Receive it as a gift. Own it. Trust in the goodness of God and step into that identity in a full way. Put two hands on the wheel and advance the kingdom of God from where you're at. I can't think of a better example of this than Jesus Christ himself. Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is what Jesus did. He embraced the life the Father assigned to him, the identity the Father assigned to him, the beloved Son who would carry out the family mission to redeem the world. He embraced that call, although it included great suffering and hardship, difficulty, temptation, oh, but so much goodness. The redemption of the world, the vanquishing of death and the powers of evil, the establishment of the kingdom of God. Jesus embraced the life the Father assigned to him. Ed Shaw in his book, Same Sex Attraction in the Church, says all Christians are indebted to someone else who stayed single for the gospel. Jesus himself, living in a patriarchal society, remained celibate, and we wrongly downplay his humanity if we think that Jesus wasn't tempted to settle down with a wife, have sex, and have children. Why didn't he? He remained single for us. Those things were incompatible with God's salvation plan for him to live, to die, and to rise again in our place. Embrace the life that God has given to you. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does this mean practically? Think first, we recognize that wherever we are in our life, whether it's our career, our job, school, relationship status, or station of life, it is not by accident. It is not arbitrary. It's not a chaotic mistake. It's not a stepping stone. God knew that you would be here at this time and is in control of the circumstances. Trust in his sovereign wisdom and goodness as he leads and you follow. That's what every single one of us are called to do. Secondly, as I was saying a moment ago, it means to embrace that life. Take hold of it. Remember what Paul says to Timothy? Take hold of eternal life. Take hold. Grab onto it. Don't let go. Embrace it. Receive it. Hug it. Grab onto this. Own your singleness. Own your marriage. Own your family as a grace gift, a stewardship from God to be used for the benefit of others and the furtherance of God's kingdom, and yes, even your own joy and fulfillment as you humbly receive this gift and walk out this calling. And negatively, it means resist the urge or temptation to think or say, when the season of my life is over, then I'll serve God. 
then I'll seek God. Or when I get married, then I'll really be useful to God. Or when I'm retired, when I'm less busy with this or that, then I'll be able or useful. Remember that story? Jesus says that the servant was sent out to invite many people to the wedding feast of the king. It's his son, he's getting married. And so the king sends out his servants to invite people to the wedding. I'm busy. I just got some new oxen, I've got to try them out. Oh, you know, I just married and I'm busy, I can't do that. Everyone is busy, and so he says, go into the highways and the byways, invite anyone and everyone. The poor, the weak, the homeless. It doesn't matter, invite them for my house will be filled. Do not neglect the gift, the offer that the Father gives to you. Listen to this. That parable is not just about the Pharisees or the Jews of the first century. It's about you and it's about me. Will we embrace the life that God has assigned to us? Or will we make all of our excuses why we are busy and cannot advance the kingdom of God now? Will we be like those in Matthew 6 who are anxious, just like the pagans, about everything else but neglect to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? There's a human tendency to discount and excuse ourselves because of our current station in life or status, but God has called you where you are. and even gifted you. Man, that really has to change, right, our way of thinking. It's a gift, either with singleness or marriage, to be right where you are in order to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Today is the day. Today is the day to seek the Lord. Today is the day to use this gift to serve others. Today is the day to use this gift to advance the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel through our life our words and our deeds. What matters for us is obeying God right now, right where we are. What matters is the new creation, church. Jordan quoted this last week, and I love it. Eugene Peterson, his book, Run With the Horses. The only place you have to be human is where you are right now. The only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day. The house you live in, this family you find yourself in, the job you've been given, the weather conditions that prevail at this moment. Now, today, embrace the life that God has given you. Now, I wanna say in closing, something we need to remember as Christians is that our message, the message of the gospel or the lifestyle as disciples of Jesus that follows it, it's never been accepted by any culture, carte blanche. It's always been a challenge. It's always been difficult to swallow, whether that's for conservative people or liberal people, all throughout the ages. This is, it's always been the same. When you know, the first century heard about the sexual ethics of the New Testament, they were like, that sounds great, I'm on board. Like, that's not how it was. It was like, okay, I've got to deny myself in order to follow Jesus. I've got to turn from these things and turn toward Jesus. Because remember, when the gospel was first preached, it wasn't right or left. It wasn't just another religion. It was a new politic. It was a message declaring there is a new king like no other king. There is a new kingdom that has been established and is a kingdom of righteousness and justice. And with that, there is a new way of living in the kingdom of God. Again, going back to those eschatological ethics that Paul has based this whole teaching on. Live in the already church. We need to hold on to this differentiation no matter what the shifting tide. Be it conservatism or liberalism, 
even as I was writing out the study, I know that in my thinking, in my practice, I'm susceptible as anyone to think like the world or the culture that I grow up in, the culture we're all swimming in. And I can swing the pendulum just like anyone else. I can tend to focus on the proof texts that support what I already think, <laughs> you know, what I want to hear about singleness, marriage, relationships, and family. But the truth is that every one of us is tempted to affirm our own rightness, to hear what we want to hear. And usually the filter through which we put these things through is the filter of self. What is best for me? What will satisfy me? What will make me happy? Listen, my last appeal. Paul, when celebrating the goodness of being single or the goodness of marriage, was not celebrating personal freedom and personal fulfillment, but glory to God, good to others, the putting of the kingdom of God on display, and through that, the finding of our true selves as the people of God. Augustine said, God is closer to me than I am to myself. It is only through God, through submission to him and his will and his kingdom way that we find ourselves, that we find what we were created for, what it means to be human, what it means to live the good life. That is only through God. In church, as we practice what Paul is exhorting us to in 1 Corinthians 7 about the goodness of marriage, about the goodness of singleness, about each of us using our gift to benefit others, to glorify God, to advance the kingdom. We're gonna cultivate this kingdom of God community here in Orange County. We're gonna put the kingdom of God on display and guess what? There are so many broken and hurting people that are looking for this fullness that is offered us in Jesus Christ. Will we follow this exhortation? Will we open wide the front doors of this church and say, this is a place where you can find belonging. This is a place where you are needed and you are needy. Will we do this? I'll close with this. Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue, says this, as the surrounding society loses its connecting glue, the most important response is to build local, small-scale forms of community, teaching our children and our congregations how to reestablish strong, life-giving relationships in a world falling apart. What matters at this stage is the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral life can be sustained through the dark ages which are already upon us. Nancy Piercy says, our families and churches must become centers of civilization that reach out beyond themselves with a model form of community. The strongest Christian communities, families, congregations, groups of singles are those driven by a larger vision, a sense of ministry. If God has given you a dependable income, a loving spouse, a strong church community, a reliable group of friends, those gifts, charisma, grace gifts, are not just for you. They are to equip you to reach out and draw in those who are broken and searching. God is giving you the opportunity to bring hope that Christianity is real and not just words. To put flesh and bones on the message of hope and healing. Christians must be prepared to minister to the wounded, the refugees of the secular moral revolution whose lives have been wrecked by its false promises of freedom and autonomy. We are at a unique moment in history where we have an incredible opportunity to become safe havens where people witness the beauty of relationships reflecting God's own commitment and faithfulness. Amen. Will we heed the call is the question. Will we practice 
this receiving of God's good gifts, when we put the life of Jesus on display, imitating him, using these grace gifts to benefit others, to glorify God and to advance the kingdom of God. I hope we will. Holy Spirit, Lord, pull down the walls Break open the echo chamber of our lives so that we might hear your offer, your good offer to bless us, to fulfill us by taking us away that we don't understand, by a way that seems difficult, by a way that can't possibly do what you're saying. Help us to trust you. Lord, we know we can trust you because we have seen your goodness displayed for us in the self-sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, even now we turn our focus there to Jesus who received this gift the stewardship from you, who embraced the life that you had given him for the benefit of us, for your glory, for the establishment of your kingdom. And we thank you. As we take this bread and this cup, as we contemplate your faithfulness, Jesus, may your faithfulness make us faithful. Holy Spirit, break open those barriers in our lives, those ways that we have compartmentalized our discipleship, our commitment to your kingdom. And today, would we begin to walk this out in a full and real, tangible, physical way? We thank you, Lord. Amen.